Okay, we're going to get started, folks. It's, uh, it's past the hour, or the bottom of the hour. And uh, I want to welcome those who are watching by live stream. Thank you for joining us this evening. And uh, we are going to continue our verse-by-verse uh, -verse study through 2 Kings. We are in chapter 17. We've got about six, maybe six, seven chapters left. And we'll be done with the Kings. And then we're going to move into another book. Uh, I do have an idea of where I'd like to go next. I've been looking at the text. But if you have an idea of, of a book in the Bible that you'd like to study, let me know. Please let me know, and I'll be glad to, to consider that. Um, but tonight we're at chapter 17. This is a very pivotal chapter in the study of 2 Kings. If you go back to the beginning of the Kings, you know that there was a divided kingdom, and uh, that happened under Jeroboam I. And uh, uh, very, uh, very much a major shift where instead of having the, the kingdom of Israel as, or Judah, now they separate and the northern kingdom is Israel, the southern kingdom is Judah. And for 254 years, uh, they have this separation. And now all of a sudden, we finally come because as you, as you well know, Israel the northern kingdom, was, was even more wicked than the southern kingdom. There were a few good uh, kings in Judah. There were zero good kings in the northern kingdom. And uh, they fell into all kinds of uh, uh, apathy and uh, apostasy, literally denying God at times, other times worshiping God along with other false gods, uh, just a real mess. And so now, after all these, you know, two generations or two uh, centuries, uh, finally God's had enough. And tonight in chapter 17, we actually see God implement his judgment towards the northern kingdom of Israel. And that was to have the Assyrian Empire come in and completely take over and decimate the northern kingdom. So we're going to be looking at that this evening. Uh, this becomes the last few chapters here in 2 Kings really take a shift from where we've been uh, in the first 16 chapters. So let's begin with prayer. Father, as we begin this evening, I'm excited about your word. I'm excited to share. Uh, I pray that you'd put a passion in my heart to convey the things that are in your heart, uh, that, that, that it would not be my opinion, it would not be my ideas or my thoughts, but Lord, what you've given us in the text would come out, that we would truly uh, examine and interpret the text as given, and that it would reach the hearts of every person here. The Holy Spirit would use it to challenge us, to grow us, to conform us to the image of Jesus. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the fall of Israel, verse 1, chapter 17. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea. Not Hosea, that was a prophet. This is Hosea, the son of Elah, began to reign in, this, in Samaria over Israel, and he reigned nine years. Now remember, the capital city of the northern kingdom, they moved it to Samaria, okay? So Hosea, the son of Elah. Uh, the last uh, we saw of Hosea was in 2 Kings Chapter 15, verse 30. Write that down if you would. 2 Kings 15, 30. Let me read it for you, just one verse. 
Here's what it says of Hosea, okay? Talk about the wickedness of the northern kingdom. Now, this guy's the new king. Chapter 15 tells us how he became the new king. Verse, verse 30, Then Hosea, the son of Elah, made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Remaliah, and struck him down and put him to death and reigned in his place in the 20th year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. So this is where Hosea leads a conspiracy against the king, Pekah, of the northern kingdom. And after a successful assassination of the king, he rises up and takes power over Israel. And that's what we see happening over and over in the northern kingdom. It was never a God-given authority to be king. It was man in his debased mind, in his, in his own reprobate way, taking the throne. So, so we have real evil occurring at the very top, and, and it's Hosea. Now, verse 2, And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. How many times have we read that as each king comes up in the northern kingdom? Yet, not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Okay, so Hosea was an evil man, but by no means was he the worst king over the northern kingdom. Now, I want you to think about it. He successfully pulled off a bloody overthrow of the preceding king, and then he assumes the power of the throne by his own hand, and yet, in the scripture, it doesn't record him as being the worst of the other kings. So this guy commits great evil and an atrocity, killing the, assassinating the king, but he's not as bad off as the other guys. What does that tell you? How, how, how low, how far the northern kingdom has fallen away from God, okay? Now, one of the reasons why he isn't viewed as unusually wicked is because it doesn't seem that he promoted the religious practices of Jeroboam I, who initiated the worship of false gods, and even himself participated, okay? So in a lesser evil sense, uh, he was somewhat an improvement over, the, over most of the kings that had gone before him. But keeping this chapter in perspective, the slight improvement of Hosea doesn't in any way offset the centuries of sin committed by these northern kings, okay? And, and that, that continual... Uh, uh, that continual thirst and, and hunger for, for evil uh, finally meets its match, and God brings it down. God is going to bring doom to the northern kingdom. So, uh, one of the takeaways of chapter 17, I'm going to tell you on the front side before we read it, uh, is that God's judgment doesn't always happen at the height of the sin being committed. And that is true throughout the Bible, and it's true in our lives today. Oftentimes, we don't pay the full consequence of our sinful decisions right away. Sometimes it's delayed, okay? In the case of the northern kingdom, they have gone over 200 years of apostasy and evil and wickedness. And just now is God bringing it to a close. He's going to judge them. So not always does God immediately judge when the sin is, is occurring. Sometimes he lets it go. Now that brings another question. Why? Why would God hold off on the judgment uh, that he's going to bring? 
I believe God is always looking for people to return to him. He's giving them opportunity to repent, okay? And in this case, over 200 years of patience by God, okay? Verse 3 says, Against him came up Shalmanazar, who is the king of Assyria. And Hosea became his vassal and paid him tribute. Now, it doesn't. It, in one sentence, it encapsulates really a significant big deal that took time. Uh, Hosea is evil. He is leading the nation out of his own heart, which is an evil heart, not out of God. And God brings judgment against Hosea and the northern kingdom. And he brings in the Assyrians to mete out his justice. That's another thing that we can say about God's judgment. God will use people. God will use situations. God will use weather. There's so many ways that God brings his judgment to those who don't obey him. And I believe that in this case, uh, he's bringing in Assyr the Assyrian king. And, and interestingly, Hosea becomes the vessel to the Assyrian king and his empire. What does that mean? It means that the Syrian, Assyrian king is going to allow him to still be the puppet king of Israel, but he's under the control of Assyria. So he has to pay tribute annually to the Assyrian empire in order to keep his status as king. And here's the saddest part about that. He's okay with it. What king of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would ever submit and subject himself to vassalage under a pagan worldly king? Only a king who's so far gone in his own evil that it doesn't bother him. He was more about title and name, how he's presented, than he was power and authority. He had no power. He had no authority but he looked like a king, and that's what mattered to him. So, very sad. I mean, really sad situation here that we're, that we're seeing. Uh, verse 4, But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hosea, for he had sent messengers to So, the king of Egypt. By the way, th there was no king of Egypt named So. This is actually referring to a city, a place, a location. And so they think it's a misspelling. Uh, there are those kinds of issues that come up in the text. 99% accuracy, but the 1% is in grammar and also like misspelling or, or getting a, a word wrong, but doesn't change the context of the Old Testament. And so he is now sending messages to uh, Egypt and he offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. So let me explain, because, because again, remember now, the kings are an overview of the happenings to the northern and southern kingdom. It is not comprehensive. If you want the comprehensive look, you have to go into the Chronicles. Okay, study the Chronicles. But let me explain when it says that Shalmaneser was the king of Assyria and 
Hosea became uh, a, a vassal to him. That's not exactly true. Yes, Shalmaneser was a co-regent with his father. His father was the king. And oftentimes in a succession plan, the father would bring the son up and they would serve as co-regents. But the father had the ultimate authority. And so that's when Hosea and Israel came under the authority of Assyrian Empire, was while his father was still in place. And that's why he was paying tribute to the father. Well, guess what happens? We learn in other places that the father died. Now Shalmaneser, the son, is the king. And Hosea thought, now's my opportunity to maybe extend and reach out to the Egyptians and not have to be so faithful to him. He still sent annual a tribute, but not on all the regions of the northern kingdom. He only sent it from certain regions. The other, he was now negotiating with the Egyptians, and Shalmaneser caught word of it. Okay, So it says, Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. When he learned that this guy is working with the Egyptians, uh, who also, the Egyptians were also uh, in a difficult, or a, not a war, but they were in a very uh, difficult place with the Assyrian Empire. So now he finds that these guys are, are consorting together, and Shalmaneser, the son, uh, he takes action, and he actually throws uh, Hosea in prison. Okay? So just to kind of give you a little bit of the background. Uh, now, what's the sin going on here in the nation of Israel? The reason I want to keep coming back to that throughout this teaching is because this is the chapter where God brings judgment against Israel. And God never brings judgment without just cause. And God will always tell us what the sin was that caused him to finally take out the, the, uh, the, the, the uh, northern kingdom. So what was the sin here? Uh, the first and foremost sin that, that Northern Kingdom committed is that when they came into trouble, they did not seek the Lord. So God sending in the Assyrian Empire, never once did Hosea or any other leader in his kingdom seek the face of God. They tried to come up with their own plan. What was their plan? Let's go into a vassalage relationship where we still have authority they don't take over, but we'll just pay them money. That's what they did. That is a major sin to not trust God. Now, so instead of looking to the Lord for help, Hosea did something else. He didn't seek the Lord. He sought man. He sought Egypt to help him. Now, look at the irony of this. 300 years Israel was in bondage where? in Egypt. And God delivered them because they cried out to God for help. And now, all these hundreds of years later, knowing their history, but not thinking about their history. You know, when you get so far into wickedness and evil, you no longer have the ability to think straight, to reconcile, to reason with all information in front of you. Because you're so bent towards sin. So now, now we have him seeking the very ones that God delivered them from. 
and he's seeking them for help instead of the Lord. So you talk about a grievous sin before God himself. Amazing. Now, verse 5. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria. And for three years he besieged it. So now the king is pretty upset. Okay, you were talking to the Egyptians. I'm going to throw you in prison, and now I'm coming in. I'm going to take over the land, and he does. And then finally he gets to the capital city of Samaria, and it says that he lays a siege. So that means he cuts off all water supply and all food. And because this is the capital city, a major city for the northern kingdom, they do have three years' worth of water and food stored up. So the siege lasts three years. That's a long time, okay? But they're going to wait it out, and they did, until finally uh, they could invade. So they swoop in, and they take Israel. They take from the capital city and major sites, major cities uh, around the northern kingdom. They take people. They take captive. The, 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 the intellectual, the skilled. They take the people that really are the most, they're, they're the producers, and they take them and they, they haul them away in, in captivity. And we're going to talk more about that in just a moment. But this is all at the hand of God. God is the one doing this, okay? This is His judgment against a people that have completely forgotten him. So let's look at verse 6. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halal, or Halah, and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. Now let me explain what's going on here, okay? So when Samaria finally fell and the northern kingdom was conquered, the Assyrians implemented their policy towards conquered nations. They always had a way of handling nations that they would conquer. And they were the empire, by the way. This is prior to the Babylonian empire. And so these guys are doing it their way. Well, here's what they would do. They would deport the, the, the smartest, the, the most skilled, all of these people that that, that that nation couldn't do without. They would take them and they would plant them in other nations that they had conquered. So they would add them to their empire, basically. Okay? So the, according to the Assyrian records okay, of, of antiquity, the Assyrians deported 27,290 inhabitants of Israel to distant locations. That's their record. Okay? Uh, the population was characteristic of Syrian policy. They would do the same in other places. But what's interesting is, uh, this is 200 years and 19 kings later before God brought this great judgment against Israel. It was not because the God of Israel was unable to, to, to do it earlier. He was waiting for them to repent. He gave them opportunities. You say, how? How did he give them opportunity? He sent in the prophets constantly. All through the study of First and Second Kings, you have prophets that are, God is using. They would not listen. So he carries Israel away to Assyria, and they followed the typical captive. You say, well, what's, what's that captive look like? Okay, here's what it looks like. 
these, these, if it was the number of 27,000 people. They stripped them down naked, 27,000 people. They take a hook and they run it through the nose or through some part of their body, their bosom, and they're on a line and they have to walk naked, hooked. This is how they would treat the captives. Why? Because this was to humiliate. This was to take away any dignity that a captive had. Treat them like dogs. And by the way, God is the one who ordered this for His people. God will go to whatever extent necessary to humble us and to break us of our sinfulness. That's a mouthful right there. And you look at your family members who don't know the Lord, you look at friends, loved ones, work associates who reject God, who are in total opposition to God, and you never want to pray that this kind of thing would happen to them. But just know that God will do the things that are necessary to break them. So while it might not be being treated naked, naked in a public setting or putting a hook in their nose, there are ways that God, even today, humbles and breaks people to get their attention for them to turn. I do not believe that we live in a day as Christians where we're being uh, uh, cursed by God. Okay? I do believe God is a God of judgment. And I do believe that, that when we disobey there are consequences to our disobedience. And God will always use it to try and get our attention. Why? Because He's a loving God. Because truly, deep inside, He wants to love us. Isn't that true of you if you parent a child? Isn't that the case? That the reason you discipline your child, the reason that you bring a form of discipline to them is because you love them. There is no love in letting your child get away with what they're doing. There's no love that when your child is doing something that is wrong, that you, that you kind of get a little laugh out of it, think it's cute. It's not cute when a three-year-old throws a tantrum. That's not cute. We shouldn't try to make light of those things. God is giving us opportunity to, to hold the line and love them the way they should be loved. And to me, that, that's something that's obviously missing in society today. You don't have parents who treat evil as evil. And they don't treat their children's sins as sinful. They make excuse for them. They blame others rather than take the responsibility. Um, I remember talking to one of the black pastors in our community in Gifford. And he came right out and told me, he said, Greg, the biggest problem with the black church in Gifford is the mothers of the children. He said, now the bigger problem is that there's no dads. That's a huge deal. But we as a church have tried to help the moms with their children, especially the boys, to help these boys in kind of like a big brother program. But we also talk to the boys when things are evil, things are wrong. We, we talk 
and the mothers throw up. They are, man, they do not want us to ever speak to their children about things like that. So now these kids are, are inculcated in evil, but they're insulated by a mother who's letting it happen. It's sad. Look at our public school system. The children are protected from discipline. And if a school teacher tries to, in some way, love that student enough to not let them get away with it, the parents come down on them. And the parents go and complain to the administration. And the administration, in some cases, comes down on the teacher. It's an upside-down system. There's no hope. There's no way to recover from that if that's the direction you're going. It's the same thing with Israel. And finally, God said, I've had enough. My divine patience is worn out. I've, I've had enough. And so this, this is what we're facing here. This is what's happening here, okay? And so he brings the Assyrians who bring this harsh way of humiliating and demeaning people. And these are God's people that they're doing it to. And God's in it. God's letting it happen. So now we enter a section of chapter 17 from here out to the end of the chapter where the reasons for the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel are recorded. What happens here is the, the writer of 2 Kings actually breaks away from the historical documents and accuracy of the document in order to give his own uh, commentary on Israel's sins. So it's not that what he's saying is inaccurate. He's just adding color to what the historical documents show. So let's get started if we can. We're going to look here at verse 7. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. It's interesting he threw that in there. Almost to help, hopefully, he's hoping that you'll remember that God brought them out of Egypt because they were in bondage. And now God allows Egypt to play a role in disciplining them. And so the root reason for the Assyrian captivity, we need to look no further than sin against God. I think it's fascinating to me how when we are confronted lovingly with sin, we quickly turn to somebody else or something else as the reason why we've committed that sin. We're trying to excuse ourselves. Brother, I, I'm just picking up on this. I'm concerned for you. I love you. And here's what, I'm, here's what I see happening in your life right now. You're starting to hang out with those people that you were hanging out with before you came to the Lord. That's not going to end well. And then the response is, well, if you only knew how rough my childhood was, how hard it is for me to love people or to, to relate to people, and these are old friends and they know me, and they, you're making excuse for your sin. We do that. We excuse our own sins. God doesn't excuse sin, and He's not excusing this kingdom. Now, specifically, it tells us that Israel feared other gods. Look at this, the last part of verse 7. 
and had feared other gods. That is a major grievous sin against the, the one true living God. He said, I'll have no other gods before me. Here they are fearing what are false gods and not fearing the one true God. Okay, so you have to wonder why they didn't remember when they had turned to Egypt for help. How come they didn't remember that, wait a minute, God delivered us from Egypt after 300 years, our forefathers. Why did they not remember that? Because they're so deep in their sin, they're only playing excuse. Let me give another excuse. Let me give a diversion. And, and they can't see the truth. Now, it only takes one generation, the Bible says. This, is, this ought to scare each of us in a healthy scare. Okay, I don't mean that in a bad scare. But it ought to put fear in us, awe for God, to think that you have a nation that clearly saw how God delivered them out of bondage. And then they go into the land, and God said, if you, you take out everybody, not because of their ethnicity, not because of their race, no, because of their behavior. They're sinful people, and they will lead you in sin, so take them out. And they go in, and they take out some of them. So now you go from a people who are led from bondage in Egypt, they cross the Red Sea, which is a picture, a type of crossing over into salvation. They're coming into the promised land, but they can't go in. Why? Because key leaders, 10 of the 12, didn't have the faith to trust God that he could give them the land. So doubt kept them out of the promised land. One generation, that, that generation dies off, the next generation goes in. Do they take the land? Some of it, not all of it. Now you have a little more of this resistance to God. By the next generation, they have totally forgotten that God delivered their grandparents from bondage. They only know of the stories of how God took the city of Jericho and other cities when they came into the land. They themselves have not had any experience like that. Why? Because that's not the focus any longer. It's no longer a focus on trusting God. Now we're in the land. We're making our own way. We're agrarian. We're going to have farms. We're going to do our thing. We will make it happen. The next generation totally forgets the Lord. That's how you end up with an Israel. It just happens generation from generation. But honestly, you can get there in one generation. Take your Bible real quick and turn with me to Joshua chapter 4. I want you to listen to what is happening here. Joshua chapter 4, and we'll pick up at verse 21. Let me set it up. So Joshua miraculously enables, or I'm sorry, God miraculously enables Joshua to lead the people through the Jordan River. They got to cross over, okay? And the Jordan River is wide, and the Jordan River is really rough. It'd be like going uh, into uh, a canyon with a, a fast-moving deep water. That's what it was like. Now, there are times of the year where the water, it, there's a drought, 
and the water is much slower and it's easy to cross. That's not the case here. They couldn't cross. They were afraid to cross, okay? And so look what it says. Joshua explained, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what are those stones or what are these stones? Then you shall let your children know the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you crossed over, that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So Joshua, they get to the edge, they're afraid to cross. God says, I will take you across. God pulls back the waters as Joshua and the priests enter the water. The waters recede. They cross over. In the bottom of the, of the riverbed are these rocks. And they said, take the rocks out of the riverbed. They take them to the other side. And that's when Joshua says, now, take these rocks. And I want you to remind your children of this day and what God did. Okay? Well, guess what? They didn't remind them. So now not only did the kids not experience firsthand God drying up a river, they don't even know the story. How important it is for us to sit with our children. Deuteronomy is very clear that we are to write it on their foreheads. We are to teach consistently and continually and redundantly the truths of God's Word to our children because it's easy to forget and it's easy to leave God behind. How important it is that we tell the stories of what God has done in our own lives. You say, well, what story? I don't have a story. Are you saved? Have you not told your children fresh anew what you were like before your salvation? and how the Lord came knocking, and how He saved you from your sinful life, your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren need to hear these stories. This is important stuff. This helps them to now connect the dots. God is a Savior. He saved my grandmother. My grandmother told me what she was like before she got saved. Wow, I've never known my grandmother like that. I've only known her this way. Why? Because God changed her. You see the importance of that? See, there's a reason why our children drift from the Lord. One reason is because they have their own heart, and they're going to do what they're going to do. You could raise your child telling them all the, the right stories and raising them the right way, and a child still rebel and go out and do it their way. That does happen. But it's less likely to happen if you've been faithful and consistent and redundant to communicate the truths of how gracious, how loving, how powerful, how sovereign your God is in your life and what He means to you. They won't forget as easily. And now you've given the Holy Spirit, who has encouraged you to do it, He's the one that put the words in your mouth, now you've given him the ability to convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Because now they know the difference. To him, to know what is right and fail to do it, James said, is a sin. But if you don't know what's right and you don't do it, you haven't sinned. 
in your eyes, you don't know any, any different. So it's very important here. So these stones were a reminder to the parents to make sure that they taught the next generation about the one true God. And they would pass on information. They would pass on knowledge about the character and the nature of God so that the children could actually look to God and know God. Okay? This is one of the saddest pages in biblical history. It's Judges chapter 2, verse 10 through 12. Write that down. Judges 2, 10 through 12. Let me read it for you. When all that generation had been together, had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord or the work which he had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. Once a generation forgets God, they will easily adapt to the gods of this world. Easily. I just can't say it enough how important it is that we as parents and grandparents, that we would continually put before our children lovingly. You know, there, there's a difference between being obnoxious and, and being loving. But don't ever think that because your child doesn't want to hear something that you have to stop. You just pray more and you ask God for ways to share, to communicate. God will give you opportunities, but don't ever stop telling the truth to your children. You never know when the light's going to come on and they're going to abandon the gods of this world and come running to the one true living God because He's reaching them. So, in Joshua's day, parents that did not teach their children the ways of the Lord suffered greatly, and that's why there's a northern kingdom that's so far from God. Okay? Uh, now, in verses 7 through 23, the writer moves away from quoting, as I said, his written sources, and he gives his own explanation. So, we're going to take a look at this, okay? Now, interestingly, he includes Judah, the southern kingdom, which also was hauled off in captivity, but not at the same time as the northern kingdom. That comes later. But he's just giving you an overview of God's judgment against Israel and Judah, okay? So let me give you a brief overview for the next 16 verses. And what we're about to read is a very full vindication of God taking action against those who have rebelled. Okay, in verse 7, he begins by stating that the Israelites had sinned against the Lord who had redeemed them from Egypt. The gross perversion sins. Perversion worship. Okay? Worshiping God in a perverted way. These are the kinds of sins that were committed. So they're still telling you, if you said, well, you shouldn't be worshiping uh, they'll say, I'm worshiping the same God as you. And they were. But they were doing it in a perverted way. Um, I, I, can't, I can't reconcile this. Maybe it's my age. 
But in this day that we live, I look at the church as a whole, and I don't see a church. I think the true church is very small. The true church is a remnant. It is not every Tom, Dick, and Harry that puts a sign out front on a location and writes the title church on the sign. I would say to you, and you say, well, is that your opinion? It's what I can't seem to get out of my mind. But it comes from Scripture. Jesus himself made it very clear in the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. In the same chapter, chapter 7, he said, uh, many on that day, will travel through a wide gate and the sign says heaven. And many will travel on that gate, through that gate, and it will lead to destruction. They're duped. Their eyes are off of the Lord and they've created their own perverted way of worshiping God. And God has never accepted any of their perversion worship. They're not part of the true church. Jesus then said, narrow is the way that leads to true life. And only a few will find it. Those are not my percentages. Those are not my numbers. Those are Jesus's. Jesus is saying, the church that you see today isn't really the church. The true church is much smaller than what you see in North America. I don't say that because I'm inside looking out and it's easy for me to cast dispersion towards others. I say it with sadness. It, it just it, it burdens my heart. I can't stop thinking about this. The numbers of places called church that have a form of worship of the one true God, but it's not acceptable to Him. One thing we know about God that He makes very clear is, uh, I'm a jealous God. I will not tolerate having other gods in my presence. Do not worship me in your own way. I've told you how to worship me. And my worship, the worship of me, has nothing to do with you. It's not about you. It's about me. And if you look at sermons that are preached today, it's about you. Let me tell you how we can, the Bible tells you how you can help with this, and how you can do this, and how you can get this, and how you can, it's all about you. It's not Bible. That's not a true church. In the true church of Jesus Christ, the true saints are slaves to Jesus and they live for Christ. They don't live for self. Does God bless them? Yes, He does. And they're able to get through this life. But never do they put the things that God's blessed them with or the people that God's blessed them to be around ahead of God. That's a form of idolatry. If you worship your children more than God, friend, 
That is a perversion form of worship. God's never wanted you to put your children ahead of Him. On Judgment Day, um, say what you want about me, okay? The reality is, on Judgment Day, if my children have worshipped other false gods and they put self on the throne and they've not been truly given to God, if necessary, I, their father, will stand and bear witness against them. That's how much I'm serious about how we should handle our children. You should love them enough now, while before judgment, so that you don't have to stand one day and bear witness against them. And by the way, you will too. If you're truly saved, you will stand there and you will see on the day of the great white throne judgment, when every person is judged according to their sins, you won't be because Jesus forgave you on the cross. You receive that by faith. They will be. You, you will see your children and you will stand there and you will not be able to bail them out. You will not be given the opportunity to plea in their behalf. God will not give you that opportunity. Why? Because He's just. He doesn't make mistakes when He judges. And you will stand there and you will bear witness against your children. Think about that. If that doesn't compel you and drive you to want to communicate the love of God to your children and, and lovingly speak to them about the things that they're doing that are evil, nothing will. This is serious stuff. See, it's not about being a Christian that just goes around and talks down about everybody. You were that person at one time. God graciously loved you and forgave you. And He forgave you with a purpose that you might help others to be forgiven. So you're not doing it to put them down. You're not better than them. You're just trying to save them from the ultimate rejection before God on Judgment Day. So you keep communicating. You keep loving. You keep sharing. So in hopes that they will turn. But here's what I know. If I do that faithfully before God on Judgment Day, when I see them and they have not been faithful to God, I won't feel, I won't have regret. It won't be because I didn't say anything. And you got to think about that. You think about uh, the rich man who threw the scraps to Lazarus under the table. Lazarus, this poor man, was eating scraps with the dogs. And they both died, the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man is in a place of torment. And he calls out to Abraham on the other side where, where Lazarus is. And he says, please, have, have Lazarus come and just touch my tongue with one drop of water. That's how much torment he's in. And Abraham said, he cannot come to you, and you cannot come to him. It's too late. Then the guy says, please send him back to warn my brothers. He had regrets. Now he's in this holding place 
preparing for the great white throne judgment where he will be cast into the lake of fire. And in that place, he has a clarity of mind because he's not clouded by sin any longer. And he comes to the point of saying, please warn my brothers. He becomes an evangelist in hell for his brothers. If you know the Lord, you want to be faithful to your children and to your friends and to your neighbors, and you want to communicate when the opportunities are given by the Spirit of God so that you don't stand in judgment or in eternity one day and regret it. You won't regret it. You just won't. Be faithful. Those who are truly saved will obey Christ. Amen? And Christ made it pretty clear, share the gospel. Don't sit on the log. Get up and share. And the first place to start is your family. You say, that's the hardest. It is. So attack it. Get after it. Love them. They're going to throw anger towards you. They're going to vent towards you. Stop it. You're always preaching at me. You're not doing it in an obnoxious way. You're being loving. And you don't have to press. But just when those opportunities come, take the opportunity. So important. You just never know. And one day, it's likely that they're going to come back to you after they're saved and say, thank you for never quitting. Thank you. I, I will never, I've still got the letter from a, a homosexual, a former homosexual, who was worshiping at our church years ago. And he heard me preach a sermon on homosexuality. He was so irate, so angry, that he got up and left. A few weeks later, he came back. And he stayed and listened. And God, by the word of God, changed him. And he walked away from that lifestyle. And in the letter, he says to me, Greg, when you share truth about homosexuality and the homosexual community rises up against you and says, this is the way I was made by God. He said, know this fact, because I was in it, and that's what I used to say. All the time I was saying it, I knew deep down inside, this is not the way God made me. And if there's people like you, they'll just keep saying it. Finally, the Holy Spirit's able to break through some of us and change us. So you want to be a burr in the saddle in this life. This is the only opportunity we have to be a burr in the saddle. Make sense? Be a burr in the saddle for your kids. Be a burr in the saddle for your friends. Don't be obnoxious. Don't drive them from God by just coming off arrogant and whatever, like I've got it, you don't, and you need to get it. And No, remember always, I used to be them. I was lost. And so share with that heart, you know, of love. You just never know how and when God's going to reach him for him. Amen? Amen. I didn't plan on sharing all that. But I do believe the Lord wants us to share it. So guess what we're going to do? We're going to stop. 
and we'll pick up. Uh, I want to do more of an in-depth study. I've got it, all my notes. I'm on page five, and I've got six more pages. Um, but we'll hold off, and we'll pick up at verse seven next week. Um, let's just pray right now. Let's take a moment. Let's have just a moment of prayer where we allow the Holy Spirit, almost like a crock pot, you know, that the longer it sits and stews, the better it tastes, right? Those, those flavors meld together. Let's let the Spirit of God now begin to meld us into the people that He wants us to be. Lord, the Word says that we are the salt of the earth. Salt is a preservative. Salt adds flavor. Jesus, you said, if salt loses its flavor, what use is it? Just go ahead and throw it out on the pathway so people can trample it. You have called us to be the salt of the earth. To, to When we come into the room, when we approach people, there's something that the flavor is different when we're around. And there's, a, there's this preservative element to it. We are here to reach people who are putrefying, who are dying, decaying in their sin. That's the truth. And you've called us to be salt. You've called us to come and preserve them. And it's your word, it's your work that saves them. It's not us. But you use us as, as a flavor and as a purifier. Oh, may we be faithful to that, that, that work. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. God bless each of you. It's so good to see all of you. And I pray you have a wonderful rest of the week. And the same to the live stream audience. Thank you, those who have tuned in. We have a small audience that listens in on Wednesday night. And uh, may the Lord bless you. Okay, God bless.